Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast from Altos Research. This is the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the trends shaping the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. You know, for three years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our weekly Altos Research video series. With the Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add context to the discussion about what's happening in the market uh, from leaders in the industry. Every week, of course, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country. We track all the pricing, all the changes in that data, all the supply and demand, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. It was frozen so solid last year, and now suddenly the landscape's changing again. So if you need to communicate about the housing market to your clients, your buyers and sellers, go to altosresearch.com and just book a free consult with our team. We'll look at local market. We can talk about how to use market data in your business. And speaking of using market data in your business, I've got my... My terrific guest today, Dave Meyer. Dave is the VP of Data and Analytics at Bigger Pockets. Bigger Pockets is a leading real estate community media network, two and a half million members in the investing space. It's a real big operation content. And I love the the work that you guys do over there. So Dave is the host of the On The Market podcast, and he's a longtime real estate investor. So we're going to talk about all of the trends in investing and, you know, the bigger pockets audiences a lot as individual investors. So we're going to take a, take a, a lot of that view today. So Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate it. That's great. Let's, um, let's start with your background. How did you get into this business and into this spot right here? I guess it started because I have been investing for about 13 years. I graduated college in 2009, which was not a great job market back then. And I was waiting tables and actually really liked that. But I had a friend that I was skiing with. I think you're a skier, right, Mike? I am. Yeah. So I had moved out to Colorado. I was skiing uh, a lot and I was driving up to go skiing with a buddy of mine who was definitely not my smartest friend. And he was like... I bought this property with my girlfriend and it's cash flowing and making all this money. And I was like, if this idiot could do it, I could definitely do it. Um, and so I, uh, I found some partners and was able to get uh, my first deal, which was fortunate because I had no money, but I was able to find some people who could help me take down a, a fourplex in Denver. Um, and I just loved it. I was really interested in it. And I was doing, you know, all the fixing the toilets and windows and all that stuff. And I still just really enjoyed it. Um, at the same time, I've always been uh, interested in data and got a master's degree in business analytics. And about seven or eight years ago, I was like, I really want to merge my two passions, which are data and real estate. And so I just like started Googling real estate software companies and Bigger Pockets was about a mile away from the house I was living in. And I knew nothing about it at the time. But, um, you know, it's a huge, as you said, you know, now we have 2.5 million members. It's grown really rapidly as a resource for really like retail investors. Um, and so now I get to help other people like myself uh, use data to make informed investing decisions. That's uh, awesome. We like making, we like using the data to make informed decisions. Uh, tell me more about Bigger Pockets, though. So, uh, two and a half million members, and it's like content. I think it started as like a blog, right? From Josh Dorkin. Oh, yeah. It was actually, I think it might have been a forum first. Um, and Josh has some funny stories about how he like seeded the forums by uh, like, answering his own questions for like years and stuff just to make it seem like stuff was going on. Uh, but then it became a blog and then a very successful podcast. And now we have all sorts of tools like calculators that can help people understand uh, which deals are good for them. Uh, we have all sorts of education that helps people really wherever you're starting from, even if you've ne barely heard of real estate investing up until people who have massive portfolios, we try and have 
tools and value to anyone who wants to improve their financial situation through real estate investing. That's yeah, and and the the bigger the bigger pockets name is always really great at uh, capturing that. Like this is about people who use real estate to build their wealth over time. Uh, I like that branding a lot. On the market is your podcast that you host there, um, which also is great branding. Uh, like, oh, that I, was, I read it like, oh, that's what I should have called this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, if you knew how many names we cycled through before settling on that one, but I think we got a good one. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it's good. And you did a, you did an episode the other day that I was listening to where uh, you have new real estate investors who were like sharing their deals. And asking people, there's a, you had a panel of three or four of you who've done a lot of deals and, and you were kind of evaluating it on the fly. Tell me about that. Yeah. So on the market, similar to your show, Mike, we, we try and help people just stay on top of current market conditions. And a lot of times that is a more technical analysis of data and talking about economics. But recently we've been trying to help people understand what deals for real estate investors are working right now. And I'm, we've done a few of them now, depending on which one you listen to. Some of them work, some of them don't. Um, and so we try and help people. I think equally important as identifying good deals is staying away from bad ones. Uh, and so we've really uh, been doing those types of analysis. And I think the the show is fun because, and, and the reason I love hosting it is we have a panel a lot of the time where it's four or five experienced investors, all very fun, knowledgeable people who come out and just help uh, break down situations and share what they're seeing uh, on this, you know, you know, in their businesses. Because I'm, I approach this, I do invest, but I, you know, work full time at Bigger Pockets and take more of this academic approach to understanding the markets, but they're out there doing this every single day. So I think we, we try and strike a good balance of, um, you know, helping people understand economics and then interpreting to that. Like, what does that mean you should actually do today with your business based on that economic news? Yeah. And, and so what is working right now? It's a fascinating time. We went from, if you could get your hands on a property it's, you know, at 2.8%, like it's going to be great, but you couldn't get your hands on it to a very different world now. So what works right now? Like what are investors buying? It's a great question. In terms of residential real estate, I think there are a couple of tactics that tend to work in almost any market. We call something house hacking, which is basically like an owner occupied investment. Uh, you live in one unit, you rent out the other ones. Um, that, that always seems to do pretty well. Um, I say that rental properties also work in any market. If you can find them, deals are hard to come by, but they're becoming easier. They're, they're getting easier to find. And that, that sort of happens in a correcting environment where sellers are for the most part holding firm, but there are some people who are willing to negotiate right now and you are able to find some more reasonable deals. Um, and surprisingly, flipping is still working really well um, for experienced operators because, uh, Mike, you're probably familiar with this, but a lot of times in a correction like this, you find that distressed assets fall further proportionally than stabilized high-quality properties. Um, but the high-quality pro properties are not going down as much as at least I thought they would. And so the spread between what like a flipper could buy a property for and sell it for has actually increased a lot. And labor and material costs have been coming down a little bit um, over the last couple of months. So surprisingly, it works well, but it's not like if you're a new investor, I wouldn't start flipping right now. I think just for experienced investors, it's actually doing pretty good these days. That, so a new investor, you wouldn't do it because it's actually still pretty hard to identify the right ones. Totally. But but when you can, the spread's actually increasing now. Yeah, that that's what some of our data is saying and what our, our experiences are telling people. That depends on the market, right? You know, there are some markets that are declining rapidly right now. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. But if you look on the East Coast and the Southeast, there's still some good prop, you know, uh, markets where prices are at least stable. Um, and that's still a pretty decent market to flip into. Um, 
all that said, uh, I, I don't know how much, Mike, you get into the commercial real estate space here, but that's the one I, I feel is the riskiest right now. And although I invest in commercial and have this year, uh, I think that has a little bit more risk um, and would caution new investors to sort of stay away from right now. Yeah. The, the, uh, anything besides any office space besides a class or even a plus is really scary. And I mean, I live in San Francisco and we have a decade of churn to work through in this and change this, this market over because there's vast amounts of space that are, are not, nobody's ever going back to them. It feels like. Yeah. It's, it's wild. It's going to be really different environment for, for office. I even think, you know, retail has bounced back a bit, but I think it's going to be interesting to see the long term what happens with retail. Um, and even multifamily commercial assets, um, they are a little bit more stable than office, but generally speaking, they are not attractive <laughs> right now in terms of the yields that they offer compared to other asset classes out there. And I personally think prices have to come down in the multifamily space as well. So, um, I still invest in them because like if you find good deals under market value or you can do value add kind of projects, those are always good. Um, but again, this this market is these types of corrections always for investors have risk and reward. Um, and it's that's why I caution um, people who are new not to stay away from it, but to stick to more sort of the easier strategies like rental property investing um, and away from flipping and commercial because it's risky. Those are inherently risky strategies for investors and doing a risky thing in a risky environment for a new investor is uh, probably not ideal. It's probably not great. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a fast way to a bunch of lessons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can learn a lot. That's that San Francisco mentality, right? Fail fast, yeah. fail often kind of thing. You, you mentioned that you think that multifamily prices still have a lot to come down. And you're thinking like multifamily, like bigger than four unit or? Yes. Yeah. And, and why do you say that that still has a lot to come down? So I think that... Yes, anything over four units um, has a bit of risk. One, the type of financing that is available for those types of units tends to be more adjustable rates. And so anyone who's got an adjustable uh, rate coming due anytime soon is going to see a big reduction in their cash flow because they're going to be paying more for debt service. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean prices will come down, but you could find some distressed operators because of that and some forced selling. Um, but I think the main thing is that cap rates, which is how these um, assets are valued, are just too low. And for anyone listening to this, if you're not familiar, cap rates are just basically a measure of market sentiment. When they're low, um, it's expensive for buyers. It's good for sellers. When they're high, it's good for buyers and bad for sellers. And cap rates are extremely low right now on a national basis. Um, and when you look at how the yield on a multifamily, like if you go and buy an A-class multifamily space, your cash flow might be, you know, 4%, 5%. But at the meantime, you could buy a U.S. government bond and get 4%. So, like, why would you buy multifamily assets with risky debt, um, you know, complex operations to get the same yield that you can with a risk-free asset? It just doesn't really make sense to me. Um, and, of course, there's the argument that if you could raise rents and boost your income, then that would push prices up. And that is true. But I'm of the belief that rent growth is a little bit petered out. Uh, I think we've had like a lot of pull forward over the last few years. And although it's still up, I think it's really going to come back down to the growth rate is going to come back down to earth. We're already seeing multifamily um, rents start to come down in a lot of markets. We, um, as of today, there's some data that came out that said there's more multifamily construct units under construction now than any time in history. So I think there's just like these, these, uh, confluence of variables coming together that make it unlikely that these valuations can be sustained. But at the same time, 
sellers are just not having it. Like people, I think like the reckoning has not come. Um, people are not willing to lower their prices yet. So I could be wrong, but I think uh, over the next like six to 12 months, my bet would be that it's going to, we're going to see, you know, a 10, 15% decline in, in multifamily values. That's a great uh prediction. I love that it's precise and, and I love that you have your, your reasoning behind it. Um, reckoning still to come. So 10 to 15%. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. So, so this is interesting though. So you mentioned cap rates uh, and rent growth. Is there a, like a national number? How do you measure cap rates across the country? What do you do for that? Um, so I actually use CoStar. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but um, they they provide some national uh, and regional cap rate uh, information. I think right now they're somewhere between five and five point five percent. And the reason I am saying that I think it will be like a fifteen ish ten fifteen percent is I think like a hundred basis point increase in cap rates um, could happen. Um, that could be even more closer to a twenty percent um, if it's a hundred basis points. So. Um, just the way the math works out. So that's sort of what I'm basing it on. You know, as you know, Mike, the economy is very strange. It's very hard to predict right now. But um, that where we sit in mid-April right now is what I think is the most likely outcome. Yeah. Do you, are there other stats, other data points that you use, that you use to understand for yourself or that you use to help communicate to your community? Like, what should people be paying attention to right now? Well, I, I'm a big fan of what you look at, Mike, or what you focus on, which is like what's happening in your market today. Uh, because, you know, the stats I've cited so far are national level, which is fun for us to talk about. But like in terms of buying stuff, it's almost useless. <laughs> um, it's not useless. It is helpful, but it doesn't help you pick what property you should be looking at or how aggressively to offer on a on a on a property. To me, I, I've been really trying to help people understand, um, you know, the importance of inventory days on market and really just trying to understand the supply and demand dynamics in, in your local market, because it is an old and you know well worn uh, tr- uh, trope in real estate, but location obviously really matters, and there, it's different everywhere. Um, and the more localized your understanding of the data, the the better it is. So um, I'm just plugging your your data and your podcast for you, but <laughs> I really believe it. I think it is extremely important. I pay very close attention to it myself. I love that. I appreciate that very much. Uh, are there is there data that you have at bigger pockets that you see that other people don't get to see? What do you have there? Yeah, so we're we're in the midst of developing that. I think right now what we get a lot of is investor sentiment, um, which isn't really readily available. Um, you know, you can hear a lot about builder sentiment, for example, that's everywhere. Um, and even you get a little bit more information from lenders on institutional investors. But the thing that I think a lot of people get wrong about the real estate investing landscape is that the majority of real estate investors are people who own one or two units. Uh, you know, 90% of rental units are owned by someone who own, people who have 10 units or less. And the majority of them have one or two. Um, and so the, those folks are really concentrated on bigger pockets. And so I think we have a pretty good sense of like how those people are operating. Um, so that's really interesting. And then we do get a good idea of like what locations they're kind of interested in because we have calculators, for example, that um, show, you know, where they can analyze deals and we connect people with agents. And so we have a good sense of um, where people are interested in investing. If you follow the housing market, I don't think you would be surprised by the locations they're interested in. So do you, so investor sentiment could be really insightful and uh, like a a well-structured survey could be like repeated each week or each month, like could be really cool. Um, I had to have, I have lots of ideas on how you might structure that. So let's do it. I would love to do that. That would be super cool. That would be super cool. Do you have a, a gut feel right now about investor sentiment? Like 
what a weird time, right? Uh, you know, we know that transactions, uh, buyers slowed down way down last year. We know that the big Wall Street monies stopped almost completely. What about your side, the vast bulk of investors in this country, the smaller and by the retail investors, what are they doing right now? I think it's split. It, it's a tough time to get into it. So I think, you know, people who have been interested and want to start investing, that has slowed down a bit, but not not entirely. I think this this um, strategy I was talking about with house hacking um, is really popular because for a lot of reasons, but it is particularly popular when rents are high and really effective when rents are high as they are now because it really helps you offset your living expenses and your personal living expenses in a really meaningful way. And so even for new investors, house hacking is always a pretty good idea. But for people who are like, you know, the craze of jumping into short-term rentals and thinking you're going to earn a 20% cash on cash return is, is I think, over, which is good. I don't, I don't, there was like a lot of hysteria there. Um, so I think like uh, it's more measured for newbies, uh, which is great. I think I recommend to anyone who wants to get into real estate investing, pick like a boring, easy strategy to get started. Learn as much as you can on a low risk approach. Um, and there still are those types of low risk approach. Rental properties work in almost every market. House hacking works in almost any market. Um, in terms of more experienced investors, I think like all of my friends who like run big, you know, real estate investing operations are just as active or more active than ever because I think they're enjoying the lack of competition that they have been struggling against over the last couple of years. And these are people, you know, who, you know, we call them retail, but they have, you know, a couple dozen properties, not like, you know, two or three. Um, they're not institutional. They, they're entrepreneurs. Like they, they run their own businesses. Um, but um, they are super active because they are really good at finding good deals. And there are good deals right now. There's a lot of garbage for sure. But, you know, if you're patient and have the systems in place to be able to spot good opportunities, um, there are definitely good deals right now. And I think the overwhelming sentiment is like, if you can find a deal that pencils right now, no one knows, but probably rates will go down within the next couple of years and that will improve your cash flow. Um, that's risky. I wouldn't, I wouldn't make an investment betting on that. But if it pencils right now, that gives you some upside. So I think people are sort of like seeing it that way. Um, and so I, I think like sentiment is better than I thought it would be, to be honest. Yeah, that me too, in fact. Um, and I think a, a couple of those points are really interesting. The first house I bought in Chicago in the mid nineties, you know, was, was a two flat and I, that was house hacking. And, and I promptly moved to San Francisco and got rid of that one. But had I stayed in Chicago at the time, I'm sure I would have a, you know, just move to a nicer one of those and do it again, kind of process. And it would have built a, a ton of wealth over the years. Um, and so like, I, I understand that. And, and I also know, you know, the ADU, um, process with a lot of states and a lot of, and, you know, Airbnb has really unlocked revenue for homeowners um, that didn't exist 10 years ago. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of it. I think upzoning is like one of the better solutions to the really high rents, high housing prices that we have in the U.S. Um, the whole state of Washington is being upzoned. Um, Colorado, where I primarily invest, um, is considering a lot of upzoning. And that term just basically means turning, you know, single family zoning into slightly more favorable zoning where you can add a second unit or a detached ADU. Um, and yeah, I think it's a really good option. Um, you know, I was talking to an investor friend in Washington who said he was going to pass on this this flip he was going to do. It was okay, but it wasn't great. And, you know, he decided to build an ADU and he's getting, you know, a, a really, really strong return now. Um, and this has been available for a year or two, but it was so hard to get materials and um, labor over the last few years that it made it a, diff a, a risky proposition. But I think now people are embracing it more because they're just able to build them faster, more predictably, 
Um, and there's a lot of like prefab options for ADUs now that are really good. Uh, so I, I totally agree. I think that's a great option these days. That's cool. Let's talk about short-term rentals and that trend. I was in Nashville last fall and, you know, a group of us, we had a house, we got a house in, in Nashville, pretty close to downtown and like the whole neighborhood were Airbnb units. And, and it was wild. Like you could tell because they all had like the same, like $15 sign said Nashville on the, like the, on the wall, right? It was like, <laughs> yeah. The string lights and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Like the lighted up sign. And, uh, yeah. and they all had little roof decks and all the, like, you know, and, and, uh, but I was like, man, that seems like that can't last. Is there a bust coming there? Like, are those people toast or is there, what, what do we know? Um, I, I think it, I can't rule it out. I'll say that. So I, I'll be honest. I own one, um, that is not like my primary form of investing, but I think it's an interesting business model. My sense is that like any new business, there's sort of a gold rush. And there was this golden time where, you know, four or five years ago, you could buy, a lot of property turned into an Airbnb. There was little competition. The cash flow was great, um, you know, and it was awesome for a while. I think it swung too far in the opposite direction, especially during the pandemic, where people were turning really not great properties into Airbnbs. People who really don't necessarily want to be in the hospitality business, and that's what it is. It's not real estate investing. You know, you have to care about your guests. Like if you want to be successful at it, you need to treat it like a business. And I think a lot of people were like, oh, it's easy money. And it's not, it's, it's work just like every other, every other business. Um, and so I think there is a correction in store. Um, we saw, I think new listings, uh, for Airbnb, like new supplies up like 25% year over year, I think. So it's big, especially at a time if there's a recession where, you know, discretionary spending could be coming down. Um, and so the, I think there's like this interesting dynamic where we could see a d decline in demand at a time where supply is peaking, um, which will probably hurt revenue for the overall short-term rental industry. People who are good operators are going to be fine. You know, if people still travel and if you have great high quality products, you know, where people have a great experience, you're probably going to be fine. Um, I do think it will might weed out some of the people who are not really serious about it in the first place um, and are probably not as focused on the customer guest experience as they should be. Yeah. the uh, And you can imagine some of the house hackers, maybe they just don't have quite as much cash flow from the property, but they'll, they'll be just fine. Uh, I didn't realize the growth was that big, like 25%. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it's pretty big. Uh, there's a great uh, data source, uh, AirDNA. I don't know if you know them, but they, they provide um, some some pretty good reporting on it. And uh, yeah, I think it will slow down. Um, but there was, especially because there's been some financing changes too that make second home uh, mortgages a bit more expensive um, than they were previously and i think there's that's probably intentional um and so i do think there's like a bunch of headwinds i don't think it's like gonna crash but you know just like every business every market like it was booming but at a certain point there's enough like enough sophisticated competition comes into the market to make it an efficient marketplace and like i think that's sort of what's happening here is like it it's just yeah yeah, the arbitrage, right? Yeah, it's just like going to be a regular old, it's going to be like rental property investing, which is great still, but it's not going to be this like, oh my God, you're going to make so much money and it's so easy kind of thing that people sort of thought it was. They thought it was, yeah. Uh, let's then let's then take that and expand it a little bit. We have created uh, a lot of real estate investors over the last decade in this country. I'll, we've taken eight, nine million properties and taking them out of resale single family homes and put them into into investment properties what happens next what happens in the downturn uh like do these do these folks 
like panic? Did they, do we finally see some inventory? Like, are they going to unload? Like if, if rents fall and the cost of money stays high, did these, do these have to get sold? What happens next? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, my gut says no, <laughs> but, um, I, that, that's just a gut feeling. Um, I think that most people, um, who bought really up until like the end of 2021 are probably doing pretty well. I mean, they probably, you know, most residential retail investors get fixed debt. You know, it's not like these commercial lenders who are, who have an arm or, you know, a balloon payment, like they have pretty solid long-term debt and rents just went crazy. And so like cash flow is probably pretty good. And I would expect that rent would have to fall significantly to put most people in trouble. Um, that said, I think, you know, like most things, like some people who bought in 2022 are probably gonna, um, you know, find, find themselves in an undesirable position. Um, and, but I don't think it's going to be the majority of people. Um, you know, we're seeing this even with homeowners aren't selling, you know, they're turning their, their existing homes into rentals because it's so undesirable either to sell or it's just profitable to hold on to them. And so my gut says that, People are going to wait it out, um, just like homeowners are right now. They're not moving. They're not selling. Um, and I just think investors are probably going to be of a similar mindset. Uh, are there conditions, economic conditions, that happen where you, as an, as an investor, start saying, you know what, I'm going to unload a couple of these and take my cash? Um, personally, I did unload a few uh, in 2022, in the beginning. Um, but I put it back into real estate, but I, I, um, I was in, these are in Denver. Um, and I just, that market went crazy and I just wanted to reduce risk and put into some, uh, safer assets I felt. Um, and that was great, but the Denver market is doing well again right now. So who knows if that was the right decision? Um, for six months, it felt like a really good decision. Yes. And now it's like, <laughs> maybe it was, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I will say that, you know, one of the things that people in the stock market look at all the time is the yield on a, a risk-free asset, right? When you're looking at bond yields, or uh, money market accounts in the 4%. I think we're reaching a point where real cash flow is tough to find in a lot of markets. And in those markets, like, is it worth taking on the expense and operational complexity of a rental property to get a 7% return when you can get four and a half doing nothing? You know, it's like, so I think those are sort of the things that, I'm curious to see how they play out over the next few years. It's like, are other asset classes going to offer cash flow that's similar to real estate? Because for the last 10, 15 years, real estate was hands down the best cash flow producing asset in, in, the, in the economy. But if that changes, I think that could really sort of change the the dynamics of the housing market in a way I don't really fully understand, but like that is something I'm curious about. Yeah, I know for me, it's like, uh, you know, the last time you, you could get interest in that rate was so long ago. I mean, I didn't have any money. Right? I didn't have a job. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so all of a sudden yeah. like, Oh, you can get, you can buy a treasury. Bond. <laughs> like it's, it's yeah. Great. It's weird. It's like, what is this? <laughs> <It's thing>? weird. <laughs> um, so, okay. So yes, I think there's a lot that we have a lot to learn about, you know, what, what does that mean? You know, we've had uh, part of our buyer demand over the last decade has been investors looking for cash flow. And what happens if that goes away? Do we suddenly, we've had decreasing inventory over the last 12 years, each year, fewer and fewer homes for sale. Um, and, does that reverse and we start finally building inventory a little bit each year uh, because we take the take some investors out of the market because they're put their money in treasuries? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that that could be. And I think especially the institutional investors, it will be interesting to see. I, I, I know there are people in the real estate investing world who are sort of worried that they're going to panic sell. Um, I don't really think that's likely. Um, they're probably have fixed debt at like 2% on a lot of stuff. You know, it's even lower than mortgage rates. Um, and so um, I think they'll be fine. But you know, they're chasing yield. So like if yields are better somewhere else, it, it'll be interesting to see if they stay in the real estate market. If, you know, the prospect of buying bonds or, you know, once the stock market recovers, if if real estate returns, um, especially in the commercial space, are as low as they are right now, um, I think there's a good chance that money goes elsewhere and that could lead to, to some more inventory, um, which would probably be a, be a good thing. You know, inventory, as you know, is extremely low and it's not, you know, investors obviously like high housing prices, but generally speaking, want a functioning housing market and doesn't feel like we're, we're there yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that actually gets to another question I'm interested in. In uh, So, you know, there's a lot of people who think we are expecting panic selling uh, that people unload. I, I, I could imagine scenarios where that happens, but there hasn't been any evidence of it yet. There's no evidence of it yet. So um, maybe it happens, but it, well, we haven't seen it yet. So maybe it doesn't happen. But my question is, are there things that you think about real estate investing in general or about the market that are either underemphasized or like the headlines always get wrong that you <laughs> want, you, that you like think the zeitgeist doesn't, doesn't get? That's so many things. I'm trying to think of which ones to say. Um, okay, there's a few things that just come to the top of my mind. Um, as someone who I think like you has like studied the housing market over the long term, um, it is not that volatile of an asset class, like historically. I know in 2008 that changed in a very dramatic way. But if you look, you know, I think a lot of people who have gotten into it or who trade stocks think of this the housing market like it's the stock market that there's these huge swings in demand and you know people can sell quickly and <clears throat> panic sell like functionally it is very difficult to panic sell in real estate like it takes months to quote unquote panic sell something there's just sort of some breaks on the housing market that don't exist in other asset classes. And so that's one thing. I think the other thing is that like rents don't typically go down during a recession. Um, they did a little bit in 2008 and his old rent data is not great, but from the data we do have, like it doesn't, um, they go down at least less than housing prices historically. And so I think, um, that is a common misconception. I think that people think like, Oh, there's a recession. People are going to stop paying rent. Rents are going to go down. And like, for the most part, that is overblown. Uh, and so although there are many other, those were the two that just jumped to my mind. That's, yeah. So do you think rents don't typically drop in a recession because people sign longer term leases? Is that what's going on? I think people just like the the old adage that like people need a place to stay is true. Um, and I think like rents don't go up uh i i guess um yeah I, they, just historically they've stayed so sticky I, I don't know the exact reason i'm curious about that myself but there's also a very limited supply of housing units um household formation right now in this market i, I can't even say historically but household formation over the last few years has been really good and so um, even though there is a glut of multifamily inventory coming online i don't expect to see rents go down more than like a percent or two, especially in the residential space and multifamily, it might be more, but I'd be curious. It's a good question. Like historically why that is true. I would have to look into it more. When you say residential space, you mean single family. Yeah. Single family duplexes, that kind of stuff. Like it, they, I don't know. When you look at the data, uh, I mean, you know, you, you have all this data. Like how, do you know how much it went down in like two Oh eight in that downturn? Uh, you know, the, um, I don't have that off the top of my head, but but uh, you know that it, it was driven by the same factor that was driving uh, house home prices, which is household formation stopped and even even like 
reverted, right? So, so it's like uh, rents and purchases are not a, they're not a substitute for each other. They are, people are forming households. Some of them are going to rent and some of them are going to buy, but they are all, they're, they're all, it's like the economy is expanding and it's time to move out of the basement, out of mom's basement and, and, you know, get my own place. Like that happens during, during expansion times. And so they, um, and they're both driven by the same thing. And it's, that's a common misconception is that sometimes people think, well, if nobody can afford to buy houses. Therefore they're going to rent and, and that's going to go up, but they tend to move, uh, you know, more in more parallel to each other. Absolutely. Yeah. It is a, it is both a fact, a function of demographics, but it is also a financial, like it is a decision point to form a household and people don't do that when they have economic fear uncertainty right right have you looked at the multifamily inventory that's coming on like the record levels of construction that are happening have you looked at that you know like do you have opinions about where it is and what it means uh i think like everything right now it's like really regional um my my reading of the situation is that it's a short-term imbalance in supply and demand like you said i think household formation is really slowing down um, and that's going to come at a time where um, the supply is coming on the market. That said, like by most people's forecasts, like we need more rental units in the U.S. Like just look at how much prices have gone up. That's a function of low supply. Um, and so I do think it might be like a short term thing where there's a glut coming at an inopportune time just economically. But I don't think it's like we're going to have like, you know, we talked about office space earlier, like. That might take decades to work through. I don't think that's the situation with multifamily. Like, I think one or two years, it's probably going to be weird. But as soon as the economy takes off and that household formation picks up again, I do think those units will be absorbed um, because all of the long-term forecasts um, tend to believe that these units are needed. That Yeah, that, that, that we... Uh... We need more supply on that side as well. I did see one comment. So, so the the interesting note is that so that we have more under construction than we've ever had before, which uh, that's a real data point. That's notable. Uh, it was like it was like 1978 or something since since the last peak. And what's fascinating is if you look at percentage based on population. Like the country is like 200% bigger now. And so it, it, percentage-wise, it's actually not absolute number of units. It's a lot. But then you think about how few we've been building compared to those days is really, really an interesting track. That's a good point. Yes. Yes. That's definitely true. As a proportion of uh, demand it's, and uh, need, yeah, it's probably much smaller. All right. So let's talk about the longer term future. Uh, talk about big trends. What what do you see about the market in the you know the later half of the decade? Um, what do you see about you know your kids? Are they going to be real estate investors? Tell me about what do you see in the future. That's so interesting. That's a great question. I don't really spend that much time thinking about that far in advance. I'd say I like for my own investing. I try and think you know like three to five years in advance, and I do think. We will see a correction and then it will rebound just because the demographics are very strong in terms of um, needing housing. Um, I don't really know where it goes, but I do, you know, I'm an investor and I obviously uh, profit from owning property. But I do just think like something is a little bit um, broken with the way housing is created in the country this country right now where like there's not affordable houses starter homes don't exist no one is building um you know small uh places if you look at the data for like the average size of new construction it's like doubled in the last 50 years you know it's really hard for people to afford you know the average person to afford a regular price home And I don't think it's because investors or builders are greedy. It's just not profitable for them. You know, like it doesn't make sense for if you look at the like the numbers and the build costs, um, it doesn't make sense for people to build starter homes. And I think something about that needs to change. Just like talking about the housing market. I don't know if it's like regulation or public private partnerships or subsidies or what it is. Um, But to me, like that 
is one of the big long-term things I worry about is like housing is just not affordable right now for most people. And that is not a good thing for investors. It's not a good thing for the country. And I really just hope like there's, I, I don't know the solution, but I hope that there is like a way that some affordability gets restored to the housing market. Um, I just think it's like better for everyone. Yeah. And it's a real conflict because, you know, as you pointed out, investors like their home prices to stay high. Uh, yet we have a lot of the country to serve without that. We have a, we have this, you know, risk, which is the most units under construction right now. But one way to bring, make houses more affordable is to build more and put more under construction. So it's a real challenge on both of those sides uh, to see where we, where it might, where we might solve it. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that there, we're going through a weird stage, um, obviously in every part of the economy, but um, yeah, I, I, um, I wonder how it will all, how it will all play out, but I do um, just like as an, as an investor think like, I, I'm not like praying for prices to go up like crazy, you know, in normal times, I think investors count on cash flow and paying down their loan and are not banking on like huge appreciation. Like I was surprised as everyone else when things went up 20% over the last couple of years. And like, I would prefer things to return to, you know, the normal time where housing prices go up marginally more than the rate of inflation. Um, and so like those are those trends. Um, I I'm interested you know, I think your colleague at, um, at housing wire, Logan Motoshami, who I'm uh, big fan of, um, talks a lot about, um, this and about how like the risks to the housing market is overheating, that it's like too hot, that there's too little inventory. Um, and like that, yeah, in some ways that sounds good to people who already own property, but I, I agree with him in that regard, that it just makes for like an unhealthy market. Um, and, and that's what sort of worries me and I hope gets cleared up over the next decade. Yeah, for sure. Do you have a view by virtue of looking at bigger pockets and where people are working all over the country? And, and do you have a view of local markets that you think feel healthiest, not necessarily, you know, invest, like we know where the investors go because we know where they think they're going to get the returns. Where do you have any place where you look and you go, you know, they do it right. I mean, I think there are places in the Southwest that gen or the Southeast, excuse me, that at least in terms of the local market conditions you provide, like seem to be the most balance, like closest to equilibrium. I can't really say like in terms of policy or like how they're doing well, but I think there are pretty good markets um, that are like just chugging along at a normal rate, which sounds great. A lot in the Midwest too, I would say, um, are doing that pretty well. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think they're, they're, you know, Madison, Wisconsin or Indianapolis, you look at these markets like do like pretty well. Um, and Tampa, for example, is like, everyone's hot on Tampa, like does pretty well. Um, so I think there are markets that are doing that. Well, I don't know if that's luck or policy or what, but, um, I think there are still markets that behave somewhat rationally in a sea of other markets that are not rational right now. Uh, that's great. I love that. So Matt, I haven't looked at, at Madison, uh, Indianapolis is wild because, it's so inexpensive. It's hard to um, imagine the replacement building costs. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. That's true. Uh, but but uh, you know, but therefore, it's, yeah, some of the rentals work there. Um, and of course, everybody, you know, Tampa's Tampa's hot on everybody's radar. It'll be really interesting to see. One of the things we've noticed in the data are that the Central Florida markets um, have been were slower to cool last year and slower to rebound this spring than say the Southwest, uh, you know, like you mentioned Denver or Phoenix or Boise, like they slammed the brakes on last year, but they're that rebounding now. Um, and so, you know, we were looking, I was noticing that some of the central Florida markets where, you know, are, if you look at the percentage of homes on the market that have had price cuts, those, 
the Central Florida ones are still are now bubbling near the top. Phoenix is still at the top right now, but like Boise was the top and that's dropped down and Denver's dropped down and Salt Lake City's dropped down. So it's been a really interesting swap over the last few uh, months. Oh, totally. I, I, I always joke that whenever I do some analysis of like different markets, Florida is always like the top five markets and the bottom five markets. Like there's just so much crazy stuff with the housing market down there. Um, and so it always makes for an interesting study. Um, but that's interesting about Central Park because Tampa, like to me, really strong, like economic growth. Like they have really good, like sort of fundamentals going on there. So I think it will be interesting. Whereas like, I think some places in Florida were really seem to be a result of people just want to get out of lockdown and go move to the beach, you know? And so I don't, it'll be interesting to see if there's like the economic uh, backbone to support some of the like valuation and growth that was there. It, it will, it will indeed. And Miami kind of did a like, um, held really robust much more during the second half of last year than a lot of uh, the rest of the country. I thought that was really interesting. Miami sort of has its, it's one of those, one of those markets that has, has its own orbit because it's so Latin America driven. Calling it Wall Street South now, you know, all those New York uh, financiers are moving down there. That's right. Well, that's excellent. We're, we are at the top of the hour. Dave, thank you so much. Uh, so, uh, bigger pockets when how do people what's the best way for people to find you follow your work and stuff sure so either on instagram where i'm at the data deli uh or on uh the on the market podcast which you can find anywhere you download podcasts all right yeah that that's a great one i really enjoyed it, especially if, for folks who are interested in the mechanics of of investing and what's happening right now, I, I enjoyed it. I, I liked your uh, conversation with Mark Zandi um, oh, yeah. the other day. He, he's great. And he may not know it, although I think I've told, shared this story with him. But there is um, some of Mark Zandi's early work was one of the reasons that I, I was like, I started Altos Research because I, I watched him publishing and I thought, I think his data is lagging and we need to know right now what's going on. This was 17, 18 years ago. Ah, that's very cool. That's awesome. Uh, so yeah, but that was a great episode. So, so that's the On the Market podcast, um, Dave Meyer, and then at the, the, the Data Deli on Instagram. Well, that is terrific. Everybody, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, if you like the podcast, I'd appreciate a review and some stars so that other people can find the podcast as well. Dave, thanks again. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate leaving a nice review on your favorite podcast app. That helps other people find us as well. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes.